Hello and welcome to The Nudge. I'm Phil Agnew and in this episode I'm happy to share another discussion I had with Richard Shotton. Richard is author of The Choice Factory, the best-selling book on applying behaviour science to advertising. He started his career 19 years ago working on applying behaviour science to marketing in a host of different industries and Richard has an incredible knowledge about the effective and practical ways brands have used behaviour science nudges and today we're talking about how they utilise the power of scarcity. We'll cover the science behind how scarcity affects consumers, how major brands use it to improve sales and how a German king used it to end a famine. To start off, I'll explain how I first noticed the importance of scarcity. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. At work towards the end of last year, my colleagues and I were debating what to include in our end of year newsletter. This year, our engineering team had developed 30 new features. It was pretty impressive, but we couldn't decide which ones to promote. Some of the features had increased speed by 30%, while others had dramatically enhanced the user experience, so it didn't feel fair to cut some out and leave some in. Eventually, we decided to include all 30 in the newsletter. After all, we thought consumers like the choice. Well, now I know it was a pretty major mistake. To explain, I'll introduce probably the most famous study on scarcity by Sheena Iyengar. Sheena's study involved selling jam. She set up two tasting booths with a variety of gourmet jams at a local supermarket. One of the booths sold just six different jams, while the other booth sold 24. Now, conventional wisdoms said the booth with more choices will sell more because consumers are more likely to find a jam they like. But Iyengar found the opposite was true. Customers at the larger booth, who could choose from 24 flavours, were far less likely to buy. In fact, only 3% of consumers at this booth made a purchase. At the second booth, with only six flavours, 30% of consumers went on to make a purchase. Iyengar had proved the power of scarcity. 
Less is genuinely more. If we'd known that before writing our newsletter, we would have definitely cut our list. That's because scarcity doesn't just encourage purchases, it actually improves the perception a consumer has of a product. I'll hand over to my guest, Richard Shotton, to explain another study that revealed this phenomenon. So these are two, two elements of this. So uh, done by Stephen Wirtsch at the University of, uh, of Virginia. And he gets 634 graduates to take part in this experiment and brings them cookies for them to rate the, 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 the taste of. And he does it in one of three scenarios. So either they have a cookie jar, full cookie jar, so it's got 10 cookies in it, uh, or a cookie jar just with a, a, a couple of cookies in it. And he finds that when people are given the jar where the cookies are in scarce supply, there's just two of them, they're rated as better tasting, worth more, etc. What's really interesting with his, the, the kind of development of the experiment, though, was in a third version, he brings the cookie jar in with just two cookies in and then explains that they've um uh, he had loads more earlier but they've gone because they were very popular and in that scenario you see much bigger effects on the change in attractiveness and willingness to pay so i think in that scenario willingness to pay goes up by about 43 percent so you see a double effect of not only does scarcity make a product more appealing if you can overlay that with an explanation uh, for the scarcity, which essentially is a very popular item, then it becomes even more uh, desirable. So a cookie jar with just two cookies in actually improves the enjoyment of the cookies when compared to a jar of 10 cookies. Incredibly, taste, which most would assume is consistent, dramatically changes based on the context. Overlay that with an explanation which says the cookies were really popular, and willingness to buy goes up by 43%. Shockingly though, most restaurants, cafes and supermarkets I go to don't do this. Very few promote their end of day stock. In fact, most throw their stock away. These studies suggest, however, that this food, this food that's been popular all day, is some of their most valuable items. Further academic studies have highlighted other ways that scarcity affects our decision making. The first is simple. When a shop displays signs claiming things like the last few limited availability and special offer today, sales considerably increase. A recent study by Agrol, June and Hoon in 2011 showed that this is true for all types of scarcity messages, including closed offers like six items remaining and open offers like stock ending soon. Consumers don't even have to be told that stock is running out due to popularity, they'll still desire it more. A slightly different study reveal how scarcity can be used to encourage healthy eating. If a child refuses to eat their vegetables, parents can inform the child that the veggies will be given to a sibling who actually does like vegetables. After being told this, the scarcity principle kicks in and the child is far more likely to eat their veg. Now one final example in Robert Cialdini's book Influence, he references a study concerning real estate. If a real estate agent selling a house points out the number of unique features that have been added to the house, it's far more likely to sell. This is even the case when the buyers don't particularly like these unique features. Many of the viewers end up thinking the house is more valuable just because the features are there. So if you're selling a house, put something unique in the house, like a stained glass window. Even if people don't like it, it will increase offers because it's a scarce feature. 
Same goes for an Airbnb. Chuck a piano in your apartment and even holidaygoers who can't play will be more likely to book your place. But how can this be applied in the real world rather than the lab? I'll hand over to Richard to explain. Now, where I think it's interesting is how you can then put this into, into practice. And there's my, one of my favourite experiments because it so easily um, could be so easily replicated by anyone who owns a, a store is uh, an experiment done by Brian Wansink, a slightly controversial professor at, uh, at Cornell, I think is now left under a slight cloud. He worked with a range of supermarkets and again um, split them into three equal groups to matched supermarkets in these different groups. One of them, they run a standard promotion, Campbell soup, 20% off, and they monitor how many people buy the soup and in what volume. And I think it's about, uh, I think about three people. Uh, sorry, people buy about three cans on average. Then in the next scenario, uh, he has the same 20% discount, but what in this kind of false scarcity approach, he says, you're only allowed to buy um, four cans. And in that scenario, people end up buying more. Even though they're restricted, people end up buying more. They buy, uh, I think, it's three and a half cans on average. And then the final group of supermarkets is um, 20% discount for the soup, and then maximum you can purchase is 12 cans. And in that scenario, the average number that people buy is five and a half cans. So what we're seeing here is two factors at play. Firstly, scarcity making the product more desirable. And, you know, think about it from a consumer's perspective. If you see 20% off, is it good value? Is it bad value? It's very hard to know because you didn't know whether the original price was, was decent. It's a complex thing to, to work out. But what you have is if, if, they, if the shop itself is trying to limit how many you buy, it gives it an aura of plausibility. And other work shown it's the plausibility of the deal that often matters more than the mathematics. So people take the fact a shop is trying to limit the amount you buy as evidence this must be a damn good deal if I've got to kind of prize Tesco or Sainsbury's fingers off the, uh, of, the, of, of the soup cans because you know, it's hurting them so much to, to, to give it away. So you've got that scarcity, that kind of uh, being very powerful. And then I think the, again, what becomes interesting in the final scenario is you're getting a combination of different nudges being used. So you're using scarcity, but also anchoring. You know, the fact they're mentioning maximum of 12, they're throwing out a giant number. You know, people take that as their starting place when considering how many cans to buy. And what all the evidence around anchoring shows is that people, when they see a number, even if it's irrelevant, even if it's ridiculously high, they take it as a starting place and they don't adjust enough. So they're just down, but not enough. So people end up buying five and a half cans. So the combination of biases makes the approach even more powerful. I think it's worth repeating that. Under normal circumstances, people buy just three cans of soup. When you limit the volume of sales to 12 cans, average sales actually goes up to five and a half cans. It's a really impressive difference that could easily be replicated across industries. 
As Richard and I were talking, I couldn't help but thinking about IKEA. Their store is the opposite of scarcity, selling everything under the sun. But I wonder how this rule could affect their sales. Would limiting the amount of plates, cutlery, glassware or other items actually increase their sales? Well, this study would suggest it would, more so than perhaps traditional price discounting would. But scarcity isn't a new thing. David Halpern, in his book, explains a fascinating historical example. During the German famine in 1777, King Frederick ordered a national cultivation programme for a brand new vegetable, the potato. The problem was that all of the villagers hated the potato. One declared, these things have neither smell nor taste, not even the dogs will eat it, so why should I? In response, Frederick used scarcity. He ordered his soldiers to form a heavy guard around the king's own potato garden. But importantly, he instructed them to deliberately let thieves in. Visibly, it was clear to the villagers that the king was guarding something dearly, and as expected, a few villagers snuck in to steal some potatoes for themselves. After discovering that the king was hoarding and carefully guarding potatoes, the villagers quickly changed their view. Within a short time, those stolen spuds were being cultivated heavily by the villagers, ecstatic about the fact that they were eating food fit for a king. This is a classic example, but it shows the power of scarcity. Essentially, we want what we can't have. Moving on, I asked Richard about a behavioural bias which strongly links to scarcity, anchoring. He explained how a jewellery manufacturer encouraged clients to spend two to three times more with them by changing the anchor. So this is around uh, uh, De Beers, and the smart use they had of anchoring was going out and saying, you should spend a month's salary on your on your diamond ring. Now, it's one, I mean, this is an amazing, um, successful campaign. You know, when they started running it, people didn't quite spend a month's salary. This when they started spending two or three weeks of salary on the diamond ring. Now, I think it's amazing because it's obvious that a salesman has a vested interest in getting you to spend as much as you possibly can. But just as anchoring suggests, if you throw out a number, people take it as a starting place. They know it's probably too punchy, but they take it as a starting place and they don't adjust enough. So what was fascinating about to beers was they had such success when they went out with creating a social norm of one month uh, salary being the, the sets, uh, the suggested uh, amount spent on a ring. The, that was back in the 1940s. They did that. They then went out again in the 1970s and this time said, you spend two months salary in your diamond ring. And again, just as anchoring suggests, people took that two months of starting place. They didn't quite spend eight weeks, but they started spending six or seven weeks on their salary uh, on their ring. So De Beers have literally made billions of pounds from the simple application of a very well-known, uh, well-known psychological bias. So scarcity and anchoring seems to go hand in hand. In fact, some of the best uses of scarcity also involve anchoring. For example, a classic scarcity tactic involves using time as an anchor. Have you ever noticed how when you're on an airline site or a concert ticket website, they limit the amount of time you have to purchase your tickets? This arbitrary countdown dramatically increases the amount of people who complete their purchase. The same goes for auctions. Bids dramatically increase in part due to the time constraints around purchasing. But Richard has a slightly different example he looked at around cinema tickets. I'll let him explain. 
we show people a variety of different uh, film posters. Sometimes they were told it's ending this weekend. Sometimes uh, there was no end date. We found people were much more likely to say they were going to visit it if they knew it was ending soon. Uh, and I've certainly seen it with other campaigns where brands have been very explicit about the end date of their promotion. They've tended to see much more success. And again, I wonder if this you know, comes full circle back to where we were at the beginning, that I think most people, if they were sit down and think about it, would be they'd recognise that consumers procrastinate. So therefore, there is something very motivating about knowing uh, the end date of a film or the end date of a promotion, because if you haven't acted um, soon, there's potential you miss it. But even though people are aware of that, it doesn't happen as often as it should do. Because when we're in the, um, I think we're in the, the heat of designing a campaign, often we get caught up in what and, and getting excited about more supposedly exciting elements of the of, of, of the brand. So just to reiterate that, in Richard's study, 300 people saw a poster for a new film and were asked how likely they were to go and watch it. But half of the participants were also told that the film was closing that weekend. Those who knew the film was ending were 36% more likely to attend. The power of scarcity isn't just an old wives' tale, it's a proven nudge. In fact, it's been proven across a number of different areas. For example, sales of jam increase when the options are limited. Sales of soup improve when you limit the amount people can buy. Cookies are actually enjoyed more if they're the last in the jar. And people are far more likely to watch a movie if they know when it stops screening. If you work at an organisation that is trying to convince people to do something, whether that's buy your product, lose weight or give money to charity, you have to consider the scarcity principle. Using it could result in fast cost-efficient ways to improve your work. If you take one thing away from this podcast, it's that people desire scarce things. It's why you rush to the bar to get one more drink when the barman calls last orders, and why you frantically push in your credit card number to bag the latest festival tickets before they sell out. When British Airways announced in 2003 that they would no longer be operating the twice-daily London to New York Concorde flight, sales the next day took off. Nothing about the Concorde had changed, it didn't fly any faster, the service didn't get any better and the airfare definitely didn't drop. It had simply become a scarce resource and as a result, people wanted it more. So when it comes to effectively persuading others using the scarcity principle, the science is clear. It's not enough simply to tell people about the benefits they'll gain if they choose your products or services. You'll also need to point out what's unique about your proposition and what they stand to lose if they fail to consider your proposal. Anyway, that is it from me today. Massive thank you again to Richard Schottend, who was kind enough to give me an hour of his time. If you're interested in learning more, give Richard a quick Google. He regularly hosts training sessions explaining the best ways to apply behaviour science to marketing. And if you're interested, also purchase his book, The Choice Factory, which is linked to in the description below. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Nudge.